Turn with me in your Bibles to 1 Corinthians 13. Our scripture reading this morning is again going to be 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4 through 7, Paul's familiar description of Christian love. But let me just take a moment to remind you how we ended up here. Uh, This summer, we uh, looked at a a series of, of passages that um, that highlighted for us the, the importance of, of living in community with other believers, how God has designed His church uh, for, uh, for the building up of the saints as each part does its work. And as we consider the, the role that God has given to His church and the importance that He has placed upon living in community with, with other believers, we asked, how is it that, that individual believers can be equipped to do that which they've been called to do? We, in and of ourselves, are not sufficient for building up the body towards maturity in Christ. We, in and of ourselves, are not sufficient to be uh, ministers of the Gospel, speaking the truth in love into one another's lives. And we said... Uh, That is true. We are not sufficient, but we are not left alone. God has given us His Holy Spirit, and through His Spirit, He has given us gifts that we might do all that we have been called to do. And so we turned our attention to 1 Corinthians 12, where Paul gives the Corinthian church a, a basic primer on spiritual gifts. And as we came to the end of that study in 1 Corinthians chapter 12, uh, Paul left us with this thought. He said, it is good to desire spiritual gifts. It is even good to desire the higher spiritual gifts. It is good to long for the gifts necessary to do the most that you can possibly do for the glory of your Lord and the good of your neighbor. But there is something even better, there is something even more to the glory of God than even the exercise of the most profound gift, and that is to walk in Christian love. He learned this from Jesus Himself, who said that they will know that you are My disciples, not because you cast out demons, or not because you heal the sick, but they will know that you are My disciples, and they will give glory to God because of the way that you love one another. And so for the last several weeks, we have been working our way through this chapter on Christian love, seeing its importance, but also seeing its character. What does it mean to love? What does it mean to love as we have been loved? What does it mean to love as Christ would have us to love? Paul gives us a description here in the middle of this chapter, and we are taking the time to go through it phrase by phrase so that we will have the opportunity to to truly understand it, but more than that, that we will have the opportunity to to apply it, to begin to identify those areas in our lives that are out of accord, that that aren't in line with this, where we fall short of this description so that we may begin to put off that which is earthly, put to death that which is sinful, and to put on more and more the garments of Christian love. And so with that ambition in mind, let us read together 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 13, verses 4 through seven. Listen to this. This is the very word of God. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. That is the reading of God's Word. Let us pray and ask for His blessing upon our study here this morning. Father God, we do ask 
that by your Spirit, the same Spirit that inspired the Apostle Paul to write these words, that you would now open our minds and our hearts to understand and to receive them, and that you would strengthen our will that we might obey them, that we might go forth from here and bring forth this fruit in our lives to the praise of your glorious grace. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In the 1999 film, Blast from the Past, two so-called normal 30-somethings are discussing a guy who they have just met, a guy who they do not know grew up in a bomb shelter because during the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis, his parents took him underground and they only uh, came out so many years Later, And as they're discussing this new guy, they are, they are discussing him with great perplexity. They don't know what to make of him because, as Eve says, the girl in the conversation, with a tone of utter exasperation, he has perfect table manners. From her perspective, that cannot possibly be a good thing. It just seems so weird. It just seems so out of accord with the way real people live. And then the guy who she is talking to, named Troy, he, he says, you know, I asked him about that. He said, good manners are just a way of showing other people that you have respect for them. You see, I didn't know that. I thought it was just a way of acting all superior. And then he says, where do you think he got such a crazy idea? And, his, and Troy responds, well, you know, he got it from the oddest place, his parents. I wonder, I wonder how many of you were taught by your parents to have good manners. I wonder how many of you were were taught to show respect for other people by maintaining a certain level of decorum. I would say that I was, at least to some extent, taught manners. My family was not ultra strict, but there was definitely a certain level of behavior that we were expected to maintain, especially when there were guests around. But despite my training, despite the things that I was taught when I was young, I think I can say that when I was a kid, and maybe even into my uh, early adulthood, I never really understood the purpose or the logic of manners. Much like Troy, I think I would have said that that manners were simply a way to prove your own superiority. They were a way to, to prove that you knew the right thing to do in the right situation, that you knew which fork you were supposed to use for dessert and which one you were supposed to use for the salad. And I never really got it. In fact, I thought it might have been even worse than that. It might have not only been a way to prove that you were superior, but actually a way of winning approval with people who thought that they were superior. And I just didn't understand what all the fuss about manners was about. It never occurred to me that having manners was any part of Christian love. It never occurred to me that not being rude was something that God cared about. And yet that's exactly what Paul says. He's been telling us about Christian love. He's told us that, that love is patient and kind. That is, that it is long-suffering. It is willing to endure evil from another without paying back in kind. And more than that, not only is it willing to suffer long, not only is it willing to endure uh, suffering from another, but it is actually willing to do good. It is actually willing to be kind to the one who is seeking to do it harm. Love is patient and kind. And more than that, love does not envy or boast. That is, it it does not look at the good that other people have been blessed with, the the good things that they have been given, and, and, and feel envious of those things, desire them for themselves, and actually hold the people in contempt for having them instead of ourselves. And it does not look at the good that it does enjoy and, and assume that it has it by right and that it makes it better. It is not boastful, it is not arrogant. And now Paul adds, and love is not rude. 
I think when you hear that, when you hear this idea that love is not rude, you, you probably have a, a pretty good picture in your mind of what it means to be rude. Like the other attributes, rudeness is something that we are familiar with. And, and I know we're familiar with it because I hear people say it all the time. I was actually on a camping trip this weekend. You can laugh if you want to. And, and I was out with, with, with Jacob and we were, we were sleeping outside on purpose in tents. And <laughs> there were people all around us because this was a group camp. And there were some 40 tents there of other people who had kids in scouts. And on numerous occasions, I heard people say to one another, that's rude. It's rude to talk late at night when other people are trying to go to sleep. It's rude to talk early in the morning when uh, you, other people are trying to still sleep. It's, it's rude to flash your, just shine your flashlight at somebody's tent. You learn all kinds of things when you're at a, a, group, a group camp. And I heard people say, that's rude. We know what rudeness is. At its most basic, to be rude is to act in a way that disregards the well-being of another person or, or of other people. When you just show no regard, when you, you just sort of set aside all concern for the good of another, you are being rude. You are rude when you act as if the interests of other people simply do not matter and can be set aside or disregarded in favor of your own. Sometimes rudeness is malicious. That is, it's, it's done with intent to harm. It's, it's actually, you're actually being rude in order to cause the other person to suffer. This is what we do when we bully or when we insult. But many times, rudeness is simply the, the expression of apathy. It's simply that you don't care. You're not actively seeking to harm someone. You just don't care enough to actually be aware of their good, and to show concern for it. It is, it is simply an essentially selfish act, the, the result of being self-absorbed and self-concerned. We, we see this in a lot of the behavior that people today will typically think of as, as rude. If you just simply go and, and Google rudeness, you'll find all kinds of pages. I found one that, that purported to show the, the 25 rudest behaviors in the United States. One of them was being noisy. I thought that was apropos for our weekend at, at camping, as people thought both being noisy late at night and being noisy early in the morning was especially rude. It listed other things like cutting in line. When, when you're not willing to wait your turn in line, you are, you are essentially saying, I'm more important than you. I, 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 my interests are, are more important than your interests. Therefore, you should have to wait longer so that I might wait less. Interrupting in conversation was a, another thing that was listed on the, the side. When you basically say, what I have to say is more important than what you have to say, so why don't you stop talking so I can start talking now. When we, when we interrupt, people are not willing to listen, not willing to, to give them their voice. There were things listed that had to do with driving. People talked about cutting people off in traffic. Again, it's just sort of a form of cutting in line, not waiting your turn or not using your turn signal or, or tailgating. These were things that were listed among the top 25 rudest things. Littering was another thing, just tossing your trash out, whether you're hiking. Again, the Boy Scouts on this camping trip, one of their service projects for the trip was that they were going to pick up trash along the, the trail that led from the campsite out to Benton Falls. And I can tell you there was no shortage of trash for them to pick up. And it's rude. It's, it's disregarding the good of others to just sort of deposit your trash wherever you want. One of the things listed on the site was being late. When you do not remember schedules, when you show up late and make other people wait upon you. Although, it's interesting, that on another website that listed things that are considered rude um, in the United States but not elsewhere in the world, actually showing up on time is considered rude in many parts of the world. 
Because if you show up on time, you're just you're, you're not giving your host due respect. And so it's, it's a little bit cultural, but they listed things like improper cell phone usage. And you can fill in the whole long gamut of what that might include. But as you look at this list, as you think the things that they want to list as the 25 rudest behaviors, you, you might wonder how some of these made the top 25, but, but even if you don't think they should be on the list of the top 25, I think we can all agree, yes, these are, these are rude behaviors. These are ways of disregarding the good of another. These are ways of, of putting my own interests ahead of, of theirs. It's a, it's a pretty good sampling of, of ways of being self-absorbed and self-concerned. And so we have an idea of what it means to be rude. But I wonder, is that really what Paul had in mind when he wrote these words? Was Paul thinking about these sort of failures of decorum, these sort of superficial, um, rude uh, insults that we are, are aware of? Is this what Paul had in mind when he said that love is rude? Well, I don't doubt that Paul would, would acknowledge that such behaviors are rude, but I think he might have something more profound in mind. Turn with me just back a few chapters to 1 Corinthians chapter 7. Just back, turn back a few pages to 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 36. Because in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 36, Paul uses this same word. In fact, it's the only other place that Paul uses this word. And here is what Paul writes. He says, if anyone thinks he is not behaving properly. That's how it's translated in the ESV. It's actually the same word. You can translate it as, if anybody thinks he is being rude. If he is not behaving properly towards his betrothed, if his passions are strong, and it has to be, let him do as he wishes, let him marry, it is no sin. So here Paul says that if, if you think you are not behaving properly that's being rude and if you are if you feel that you're doing that if you feel that you're being rude then it is okay to to move in another direction now that's a a difficult passage to make sense of what is paul talking about here when he when he's talking about marriage and and marrying your betrothal if you scan back up to verse 25 you see that Paul is talking about the wisdom or the virtue of marrying or not marrying. This seems to be one of the questions that the Corinthians had asked them. Should Christians get married or, or not? Which is better? Which is more godly? This is the question that the Corinthians were asking. And Paul says that given the present distress, now that's important. Given the present distress, this is not a rule for all circumstances at all times, but given the present distress, given the, the persecution that Christians were going to face in that time, in that place, he says it is good not to marry. You see, Paul understood human weakness. He understood that when the persecution came, those who were married, those who had families, that they would be more tempted to compromise, that they would be more tempted to renounce Jesus in order to save their loved ones. It's one thing to face persecution yourself. It's another thing to, to bring your family with you into persecution. You know, we, we understand this, uh, I think, naturally. Even Hollywood understands this. I mean, how often do you see in a movie where you know, they go after the hero and the hero's willing to endure all, but as soon as they go after one of his loved ones, now he's tempted to compromise. That's the sort of dynamic that Paul is talking about here. He says, he says if you have a wife, if you have children, if you have a family, it's going to make it harder for you to endure the persecution, and I would spare you that. 
It might be good to hold off on getting married for a time. He's not speaking against marriage in general. He's just saying that in the present circumstances, given the present situation, it might be good not to marry for a while. But if you do want to marry, you're not sinning. I'm not saying that it's bad to marry. I'm just saying that it's going to cause you some trouble if you do. It's going to bring difficulties into your life in the present circumstances. And one of the reasons why you might want to marry, Paul says, is if you believe that you are being rude to your betrothed. If you believe that you are not treating them properly, then you might want to go ahead and marry, even though it's going to make your life difficult in the coming persecution. So what does that mean? What does it mean to be rude? What does it mean to, to be not behaving properly towards your betrothed? Well, again, it's one of those verses that is much debated, and I don't have time or ability to really unpack it all this morning. But, but just the, the, the idea itself, I think, helps us in understanding what Paul means when we get to chapter 13. If you are not behaving properly, if you're not treating them as they ought to be treated, as your betrothed, that is what rudeness is. Not treating someone as they ought to be Treated, regarding them as less than they are, regarding them as other than they are. You know, would Paul say that, that bad manners are rude? I, I think he probably would. Despite my misunderstandings as a child, I think the guy in the movie was actually right. Manners are a way of showing other people that we respect them. Now, we can also disrespect people. We can actually be rude about manners, so you can take it too far. But manners are a way of showing other people that we respect them. Just uh, behaving around them with some sort of protocol when we are together in a group. A protocol that allows groups to function without stepping on one another's toes. Are some of the things that we, other things that we do, like playing our music too loud or using our, our cell phone in a, in a movie theater, are those things rude? Yes, I think Paul would say yes, those things are, are rude. But they are very superficial levels of rudeness. If we stop there and say, well, you know, I don't use my cell phone in the movie theater. You know, I don't have a problem with this rudeness thing. I can move on to the next one. We, we might be missing the point that Paul is trying to make when he says love is not rude. It's not just about manners. It's not just about certain types of inconsiderate behavior. But it's about not treating people as they ought to be treated. It's about not relating to other people as they actually are. I'm always reminded of C.S. Lewis's quote in The Weight of Glory. He says, there are no ordinary people. There are no mere mortals. We are image bearers of God. We are people created in His likeness. And we have been called into His family. Uh, those who have believed in the Lord Jesus Christ have been adopted as his, his children. We were created by God and we were created for God. And we ought to relate to one another in a way that is in accord with us being the image bearers of God, and that is in accord with us being called into His service. And when we fail to do that, when we fail to relate to other human beings as human beings, as image bearers of God, as, as brothers and sisters in Christ, when we fail to do that, we are being rude. So what does that mean? Well, Paul gives us a little glimpse in Romans chapter 13. He's, he's talking about government officials, and he says that you ought to pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. 
And he says, so if, if someone has an office that's been given to them by God, and that it is an office that demands your respect, show the proper respect. It doesn't mean you always have to obey everything they say, especially if they give unlawful commands. The apostles prove that in uh, the early chapters of Acts. But nevertheless, you do it with respect. Respect to whom respect is owed. But then, Paul goes on to say, and whatever love requires, may that be regarded as your debt to everyone around you. May your only debt be to love well the people whom God has placed in your life. In his letter to Timothy, he goes into a little more detail about what that might look like, about what that might mean to treat other people as they deserve to be treated. He writes these words. He says, Do not rebuke an older man, but encourage him as you would a father. Younger men as brothers. Older women as mothers. Younger women as sisters in all purity. And so he, he's beginning to, to work this out for us. Treat older men as fathers. Show them that due respect. Treat uh, your peers as, as brothers. Treat older women as mothers and, and younger women as sisters. He then goes on to give pretty detailed instructions about how widows are to be cared for and how elders in the church are to be honored and how uh, you are to conduct yourself in the workplace and at home. Because this is what love does. This is what Paul means when he says that love is not rude. Love conducts itself as it ought to in relationship with everyone that God has brought into its life. It does not treat anyone else as as less than human. It does not treat anyone else as less than an image bearer of God. It does not disregard the calling that God has placed upon their lives. But rather, it gives honor to whom honor is due, respect to whom respect is due. It treats other people as they deserve. And we can begin to work this out in the, the details of our own situations. I am, I am a husband, I am a father, I am a son, I am a sibling, I am a pastor. And so I can begin to ask myself, what does it mean for me not to be rude as a husband? What does it mean for me to treat my wife as she ought to be treated? And of course, as we begin to work out an answer to that question, it leads us into all kinds of, uh, of, of other uh, study of the Scriptures because we have to ask ourselves, well, what is, what is a wife? What is the wife's calling? What is the wife's identity? Well, the Scriptures tell us that the wife is the husband's helpmate, created to be her, his, his helper. But what does that mean? I think far too many people today think that means, well, that means the wife is my servant. She's here to do what I need. She's here to, to help me out. And, and Scripture could not contradict that any more strongly than it does. The, the, the husband is actually the servant. The husband is the one who is the servant of the Lord. He is here to do his master's bidding. And the truth of the matter is, is that the husband by himself cannot fulfill all that his master, the Lord, has given him to do. He has been tasked with taking dominion of the earth and raising up the next generation to, to, to take dominion in his footsteps. That's what the, the taking dominion and the, and the multiplying is all about. It's not just about biological reproduction. It's about raising up the next generation to do what is to the glory of God. And God says it's not good for man to, to endeavor that on his own. He can't do it. He needs help. He needs a strong helper. He needs one to come alongside him. That's what the wife was created for. And, and if you have any uh, doubt about how strong a word that is, recognize that other than the wife, the one who is most often called helper in the Scriptures is God Himself. 
It is God who enables us to do what we have been called to do. It is the wife who enables the husband to do what he has been called to do. It is the family together as a unit that is able to take dominion and raise up the next generation. And so what does it mean for a husband to treat his wife uh, without being rude? What does it mean for him to treat his wife as she deserves? It means that he does not regard her as his servant, as here to serve him, but as his helper to help him serve the Lord. And now we begin to see what it means not to be rude. We don't regard other people as there for us. We don't regard other people as at our disposal. But rather, we regard ourselves as we have been created as servants of the Lord, and we regard them as those who are in that same journey with us. We regard our wives as those who are there to help us as we seek as a family to bring honor and glory to the Lord. Of course, I could say the same thing about being a father. There are many cultures who, who, who basically think that the children are the, are the parents' slaves. That they are there to do their, their bidding. And again, Scripture says, no, they're not there for you. You are there for them. They've been entrusted to you that you might raise them up so that they might know how to serve their true master, the Lord. Raise them in the instruction and the discipline of the Lord. Now kids, before you get too excited, that doesn't mean your parents can't give you chores. Because they do have authority, and and it is right and proper for you to participate in in the working out of the business of the house. It's it's right for you to to have work to do. But they are not there to to simply have you serve their interests. They are there to teach you how to be one who serves the glory of the Lord. And they have the authority to do that. They have the authority to correct you when you go astray. They have the authority to instruct you. But they do not do it in their own selfish ends. That would be rude. That would be not treating you as image bearers of God. But rather they do it that that you might learn yourself to be a, a follower of Christ who can raise up the next generation after you to do the same. We could say the same thing about siblings. How do siblings relate to one another? What does it mean for one sibling not to be rude to another? And again, it's not to regard other siblings as as a nuisance or as an obstacle or as a a slave or as a a means to be used, but rather to regard them as image bearers of, of God, to be helped along the way, that you are allies in a common endeavor. We could go on. What does it mean for me to not be rude as a pastor? What does it mean for you not to be rude in your workplace? What does it mean for us not to be rude as as citizens? David was praying about that already, praying for the wisdom that we might know how to be good citizens in this this country. Citizens means that we show respect where respect is due, but also uh, that we we seek to honor God where we are called to do that and with the means that are at our disposal. What does it mean not to be rude? It means that we do not fail to treat our neighbors as image bearers of God, called by God into various positions, given various authorities. We treat each person as they deserve to be treated, given who they are and what it is that they have been called to do. That's what Paul is talking about. Our manners are part of that, of course. Our inconsiderate behavior are part of that, of course. But it goes much deeper. It means seeing each person for who they are, Seeing each person not according to the flesh, Paul says, but with spiritual eyes, that we might regard them as God regards them, and that we might treat them accordingly. And so how do we do that? How do we, how do we begin to put off rudeness? How do we begin to, to treat one another with the respect that is due to uh, each one? 
But you will not be surprised to hear me say that we find the power to put these things off and to, to put on love in the Gospel of Jesus Christ. It's where we return again and again each week. As we identify behaviors in our own life that are rude, as we begin to, to see ways that we have disregarded the good of our, our neighbor, we need to begin to, to identify those and we need to begin to make a decision to, to put those things off, to, to no longer behave that way. But if you have ever tried to change your behavior, you know a mere act of will is not enough. It is not going to be enough just simply to decide that you're no, not, no longer going to be rude. You, you have to have a change of heart. Your heart has to be transformed, and your heart is transformed as the gospel goes to work. It's as we see Jesus Christ as the one preeminently who was not rude. Think about who Christ was. Not only did he, did he not uh, put his own interest ahead of others, not only did he not grasp at his equality with God, but he was willing to become obedient even to the point of death on a cross for us. He was willing to, to treat us as image bearers of God. Even though we were fallen, even though we were sinful, even though we had rebelled against him, he loved us as those who were created in the image of God, and He came to redeem us and to, to claim us as His own, that He might bring us to God and that He might present us to Him holy and blameless in His sight. And so in, because Jesus did that for us, we are now free to begin to put off Rudeness. We, we do not have to rudely seek after our own good. We do not have to rudely go after our own interests, but we are free. We are, we are free from, from that type, sort of self-protection. We are free to, to look out for the interests of others, but not only are we free to do it, we are motivated to do it. Because Jesus shows us what true life is. Think about how Jesus lived. When the children came to Him, the, the disciples thought it was rude. They thought it was rude that these children would come, and Jesus said, no, let them, let them come. They, these, these, are, these are children. This is the next generation of my, my father's family. Let them come. When, when the sick and the lame came, people wondered, well, why would, he, why, would he, why would he want to be concerned with them? Shouldn't he be looking after the healthy and the powerful? He said, no, let me spend my time with those who are in need. I did not come for the healthy, but for the sick. But then when maybe some of those healthy did come and they began to recognize some of their actual sickness, when Nicodemus came at night, he was willing to have the conversation. He was willing to give his time. He was not rude, but he received and he spoke and he, and he instructed graciously. And again and again, because Jesus did this, he showed us what it looks like to love. And he said, this is true life. If you think you're going to find your life in, in, in going after your own good, you are sorely mistaken. You believe the lie of the devil. But if you will leave, if you will lose your life for my sake, if you will set aside your interest for my sake, you will find true life and you will find it abundantly. Because you see, Jesus not only shows us that our good is secure, bought and paid for with his own precious blood, but he shows us what the life lived to God looks like. And he says, come and follow me, because in this life you will find blessing. And so how do we allow those truths to begin to soak our brains and to begin to, to transform them so that, so that the gospel dwells in us richly and so that we live out of that hope day by day? And what begins right here is we gather for worship, as we gather to remember this gospel, but it has to continue as we go forth. As we go forth and we remember these things in our own private worship and, and even in our own prayers from hour to hour. 
You see, we, we, Brother Lawrence talked about practicing the presence of God, living each moment as if before the face of God, not so that he could earn God's favor, but so that he would not forget his blessing. That's what I call us to. Let us, let us learn to live with these Gospels richly in our hearts, richly in our minds, not so that we can mind our P's and Q's and earn God's favor, but so that we can remember to live in the favor that has been bought and paid for by our Savior Jesus Christ. You see, Paul is not only describing uh, Christian love, he's describing the love that we have been called to and saved for. And so let us trust Jesus Christ and let us give our lives to this thing. Let us ask for his power that we might walk in this new way. Not only that his name might be praised, but so that we might enjoy all the blessings of walking in the way that we were created to walk, that we might know the true blessing of being image bearers of God. And so, if we will do that, He will gladly answer. He will give us all the grace we need. And because He will, that is why we call it good news. Do you believe that? Amen. Let us believe it together. Father God, we do rejoice in Your goodness. We rejoice in uh, this, this vision of, of Christian love that you have set before us through the pen of the Apostle Paul. Father, we readily admit that if this was what we had to do in order to earn your favor, we would be without hope. How glad we are, Father, that this is not a, a, a vision of what we must do, but this is a vision of where you are taking us. And so, Father, we humbly ask even now that you would, by your grace, move us towards this goal. Make us people of love. Help us by your power to put to death rudeness and to put on true Christian respect. Father, we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.